Hello and welcome. This is the Race and Podcast, a series of interviews and conversations hosted by the Society of Architectural Historians, Race and Architectural History Group. My name is Charles Davis, and I'm an Associate Professor of Architectural History at SUNY Buffalo. I am also the host of the Race and Podcast, and I'm here to introduce you to a special series produced in collaboration with Princeton University School of Architecture. This series is entitled American Architecture as a Settler Colonial Project. This series re-examines American architecture through the lens of settler colonialism to identify the ways that racial discourses have distorted our conception of the built environment. It is divided into two parts. Part one examines canonical examples of American architecture and its written theory from the late 19th century to the present. Part two recovers the works of people of color to reprise the countercultural definitions of architecture that have been lost to time. A major goal of these podcasts is to provide teaching plans to primary, secondary, and higher education instructors who wish to examine the role of race on the built environment. Please take a look at the resources provided in the show notes of each episode, which include annotations of each conversation and detailed bibliographies on reference materials students can explore. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy our series. At the height of the 1920s in America, construction was booming and the mass production of goods for the middle class, such as cars, cameras, radios, and even homes, were taking off. America at this time was seen not only as a place of production, but also as a place of progress. In his presidential campaign speech on October 22, 1928, Herbert Hoover celebrated this progress saying that the slogan of progress is changing from the full dinner pail to the full garage. This progress, Hoover claimed, was uniquely American, spurred on by Republican values of capitalism with minimal government involvement, the spirit of adventure, and the doctrine of rugged individualism. In the same year of Hoover's speech, Just a year before the dream of American progress would come to a halt with the Black Friday stock market crash, a book claiming to write an authoritative history of American architecture was published. The book was titled American Architecture, and it was written by Sidney Fisk Kimball. With his book, Kimball sought to encapsulate architecture as a new and vital art by describing its evolution from the founding of European colonies in North America to the beginning of the 20th century. In line with Hoover's rhetoric of American identity, American architecture also constructed a narrative of progress achieved through the mutual development of American civilization and architectural form. This 
podcast takes Kimball's book, American Architecture, as a site to investigate how the idea of a distinct American identity associated with progress was formed in connection with architecture and architectural history. The themes of race, capitalism, labor, and settler colonialism that run throughout the text, but are not named, as well as the groups and typologies that Kimball chose to include and leave out, illustrate the unmentioned but powerful forces that shape the identification of American architecture and critics' perceptions of it. We'll proceed thematically through the text, taking time to focus on its construction of a white origin story, how a narrative of competition reflected a capitalist attitude, the myth of newness, the labor and status of the architect in all of this, and what the text has to say about writing history. To jump to these locations, you can find timestamps in our show notes. There you can also find more in-depth explanations of concepts we will talk about in this podcast. I'm Jeremy Wollen. And I'm Carrie Bly. And as two PhD students in the history and theory of architecture at Princeton University, we look to Kimball's American architecture to explore what it means for us to construct, or perhaps reconstruct, a history of American architecture. The author of American Architecture was Sidney Fisk Kimball. Kimball was trained as an architect at Harvard University and received a PhD at the University of Michigan in 1915 with a dissertation on the works of Thomas Jefferson. After that, he worked as an architectural historian, preservationist, and was a longtime director of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Let's begin by asking how does Kimball want readers to see the history of American architecture? Well, from the very first sentence of the text, Kimball frames this history as one of continuous Euro-American conquest over the wilderness. He echoes Hoover's appeal to rugged individualism when he writes, Among a people with the vast material task of conquering the wilderness of a continent, mastering the richness of its soil, its forests, its waters and mountains, artistic expression takes chiefly the form of building, of architecture. It is in architecture of all of the arts that America has said best what it has had to say. It is in architecture that America, grown to imperial might, has said something new and vital in art. So Kimball frames the history of American architecture as a conquest over nature that reveals what America has to say. How does he structure this narrative? Just looking at how Kimball organized his chapters is quite revealing of which influences and forces he thought contributed to the development of American architecture. Of the 16 chapters in the book, the first six focus on the influences and typologies within colonial America. The following 10 take a largely chronological path through the stylistic developments that emerged from the American Revolution through to the time of the book's publication in the early 20th century. So the first six chapters are like the foundation. They describe what preceded and supported what Kimball would recognize as American architecture, but they aren't given in chronological order like the last 10 chapters are, is that right? Yes, exactly. If you know a little about American history, you know that the Spanish and the French arrived in North America and established settlements prior to the British. But Kimball places the Spanish and French in their architecture at the very end, in chapter six of his six chapter origin story of colonial American architecture under the title Spanish and French Outposts. It seems strange for a history book to rearrange the order of events. Well, it is an important move for Kimball in two ways. First, it means that England and to some extent other nations of Northern Europe are the real ancestors of Kimball's American architectural history. In making the switch to privilege the British as originators rather than the French or the Spanish, Kimball makes a subtle differentiation between white Europeans. 
The second effect of this misordering is that the influence of indigenous peoples on American architecture are referenced only at the end of the foundational sequence. Kimball flatly states that the Spanish quote, built in the manner of the Indians, of adobe and of sun-dried brick, with flat reefs of clay on crude wooden beams projecting from the walls, end quote. In contrast, the influence of indigenous peoples on architecture in the English colonies was silenced. This was purposeful by Kimball in contrast to other authors of the time. He writes of the English wigwams at Jamestown and Plymouth that they were, quote, by no means like those of the Indians, as some have thought, end quote. Although he does not specify where the English learned to build these structures, if not from observing native architecture. So there is deliberate misordering and censorship, which results in a historical narrative which privileges Northern European white British identity and censors the appearance of indigeneity. Yes, this censorship is an example of native elimination, and we can see it as part of a larger pattern of settler colonialism, which inflects much of the text. Right, so you're referring to the concepts that are formulated by Dr. Patrick Wolf, which explains how settler colonial society purposefully removes indigenous peoples and cultures to make way for the settler and their culture. This essentially eliminates the native, both in the sense of cultural practices, as well as outright genocide, as a precondition for establishing a new nation like the United States. Right, and this book is playing out that concept. If we think of the book itself as territory, we can see that the Northeast and specifically New England are given the most territory and that Northern Europeans are given the most autonomy and authority. In the first chapter titled The Beginnings, Kimball describes the English, Swedes, and Dutch journeying to the wilderness to settle on a frontier of ownership. By limiting indigenous presence in the book and by denying indigenous influence on the English wigwam, Kimball's narrative eliminates threats to British occupation and claims to land, and in doing so, makes the English seem to be indigenous to the Americas themselves. Indigeneity is not the only population censored in this book. Another curious disappearance is that of enslaved people and slavers. Even though America was built on the labor of enslaved people, slavery gets almost no mention in Kimball's descriptions of either the North or South, save for a passing reference to, quote, the humble quarters of the Blacks, end quote, in chapter five, Provincial Types of the Seaboard. I suppose that the reality of America founded on slavery posed a threat to Kimball's narrative of an ideal democracy arising from the wilderness through the work of a white population. Right. He writes, democracy with its far-reaching effects was rooted in the soil. And for over 200 years, only the enslavement of another race could keep men in bondage. So he treats slavery as though it was incidental to, but not constitutive of democracy. Like, as long as democracy exists for some people, but not others, there still is democracy. Yeah, and who is included in Kimball's idea of America and American democracy is pretty clear. Slaves and slavers and the indigenous people are not early Americans for Kimball's purposes. His Americans are a few gentlefolk, and a majority of yeoman, tenants, or farm laborers, for whom the defining feature of the America they encountered was, in Kimball's words, a boon of free land. Only these morally righteous white male settlers those who saw America as a, quote, frontier of ownership and could make a claim to that ownership were the progenitors of Kimball's American architecture. Okay, so now that Kimball has made it out of the wilderness, what about the 10 chapters that follow this foundational section? What kind of story plays out there? The dominant theme in these chapters is an evolution of architectural styles through ongoing competition. 
Each chapter details a struggle between two opposing styles and the architects who represent them. Often, one succeeds and becomes the dominant style of the following era. This battle is the driving force for the remainder of the book. In Kimball's words, the battle of the styles was on. The motor of stylistic development and development of American architecture, then, is competition. So how is the winner decided? The winner is the one that Kimball feels best represents the ideas of America as a new republic. Which, as we have already discussed, contains a lot of biases. Right. So, for example, the competition begins with a rivalry between two revivals, classical and romantic. The battle between them ends in the total splintering of these styles into multiple factions, Roman and Greek, Gothic and Romanesque. However, to your point about biases, these are all styles imported from Europe. And even if these European styles are adapted to America, they are not yet the height of American architecture. Right, because for Kimball, democracy and the New Republic are part of the soil and the land of America. So even if European heritage is important to Kimball in that it gives certain people rights to the soil of America, a European style can't fully express Americanness because it doesn't come from an American context. Exactly. In Kimball's battle of styles, Europe must be defeated by America. And this happens in the late 1800s as new building technology, commercialism, and industrial society reshapes architecture. Kimball depicts a, quote, struggle for mastery, end quote, between two groups of architects in the 1890s. One group is led by McKim, Mead, and White. They seek to declare victory over nature by imposing order. The other group, defined by the disciples of H.H. H. Richardson, like Burnham, Root, and Sullivan, declares surrender to nature, which they saw as a source of creative inspiration. These two groups form what Kimball refers to as the poles of modernism, form and function. By the early 20th century, modernism becomes the highest form of American architecture in Kimball's narrative. Well, I was, I was going to ask who Kimball declares the winner, but then I remembered that both these parties are deeply inscribed into canonical history of American architecture, meaning, in a sense, they both win. Yeah, Kimball declares the former group of classicists triumphant, exemplified by their contributions to the Chicago World's Fair. He describes the losers as aged and defeated, but still undaunted, perhaps ready to fight another battle. By using competition as the motor of historical progression, Kimball is able to write all parties, at least all the parties that he wants to acknowledge, into a history of American architecture, while at the same time seemingly outsourcing the production of that historical narrative to competition, which he makes this natural driving force of book. Yeah, competition as natural force is important to Kimball's argument. It justifies a lot of power hierarchies that connects back to the settler colonial themes in what we have already talked about. Remembering that Kimball presents America as a free open land ripe for the taking on which only the strongest will succeed. Capitalist competition is also the context that births the truly American architecture. I think it is for this reason that Kimball attributes the last victory of the book to the city of Manhattan. Of the city, he writes, all is exaggerated, still unordered, but intoxicating, already full of fantastic beauty. Here, Manhattan is described as the center of the world and a place of monstrous growth. In Manhattan, Kimball finds the beginnings of a new style. This new style will carry American architecture into the future as a new participant in the never-ending battle of styles and stimulate competition with other cities. He writes, quote, all over the lands, the vision of Manhattan has captured the imagination, end quote. He frames New York as a model that other cities such as Chicago, Philadelphia, and Detroit are continuously seeking to undo. Manhattan's place of honor in Kimball's book exemplifies the importance of capitalism and competition to Kimball's definition of American architecture. This ongoing threat of competition and Kimball's decision to end the book with the capitalist center of Manhattan frame American architecture and the United States more broadly as a capitalist enterprise, guided by a free market in which the strongest style wins out.
So far, our discussion has been about Kimball's national and stylistic conceptions of American history. Right, for Kimball, America was founded by Northern Europeans, and American architecture was developed through a title of architectural styles that eventually overcame Europeanness when the American capitalist enterprise became the basis of style. And in both cases, a common feature in his choice of successful nations and styles is that whiteness is associated with success, while indigeneity is eliminated and people of color are made invisible. Yet, while Kimball tells the story of American architecture as a continuous and unending battle of architectural styles and of nationalities, each seeking to embody the idea of American, what it means to be American is not really a debate for him. Throughout his text, Americanness is consistently linked to newness in industry, in land, in community, and in the organization of government. Listen to how many times the word new is used in this quote from the foreword to his book. Only with the founding of the Republic does a new creative spirit appear, a new sense of form. Then, as a new civilization takes shape, amid the hum of harvester and factory, a new material, steel, leaps from the earth. Its towers, rising in sunshine and storm, glowing in the night, embody the aspiration of a new world. In those three sentences, he uses new five times. It's like the founding principle of the Republic happens in a big bang where a whole and distinct universe was created all at once. Yeah, well, for Kimball, America had no history prior to European settlement. So in a sense, it is a Big Bang theory that begins when the white Europeans collide with the so-called wilderness. And like the Big Bang, it's an origin story that has a temporal and spatial dimension. For Kimball, America is new because it's not old like Europe. And newness is an elaboration of the myth that America was formed by, as Kimball writes in the foreword, conquering the wilderness of a continent. This is the same myth that, as we discussed earlier, eliminates the accounts of people, communities, plants, animals who countered or impeded the colonial settler claims to land and capital prosperity. So what you're saying is American newness is actually a social and geographical mark of difference. That's right. And because that mark of difference has been written into history through his book and through the work of other people, I think it's important to use the word myth to describe Kimball's rhetoric for a couple of reasons. First, in order to challenge Kimball's claims to an authoritative history of American architecture and make room for other narratives. Second, recognizing the association between new and America as the structure of a myth allows us to also recognize it as having rhetorical power. This myth, like most myths, had a purpose. Kimball was certainly not the first to use the association between new and America, but his reliance on it and adaptation of it to an architectural history should lead us to a deeper analysis of the history he constructs and the architecture he promotes. In short, what was the purpose of this myth in Kimball's book? What did it do for architects and for architecture as a practice and discipline? If we want to know what purpose Kimball's origin myth of America served for architects and for architecture as a practice and discipline, but we can't ask Kimball himself, where do we look? Well, I think we can look at the role Kimball gives to architects and architecture in the making of America. Do you remember that quote I read? He writes, only the founding of the Republic does a new creative spirit appear, a new sense of form. In this quote, the architect is the new creative spirit that Kimball denominates as form giver to the Republic. The architect is the leader of civilization's formal development towards an American ideal. So within this progressive historical narrative that Kimball constructs, the hero is the architect. Yeah. And by making the architect a creator and artist, Kimball also sets them apart from replicators, reproducers, imitators, in short, laborers. The message here is where laborers produce, 
architects transform. We have already talked about the censored appearance of indigenous and black narratives. And to that, I think we can add the intersecting identity of the laborer. Throughout the book, Kimball uses a poetic rhetoric to bring the work of architects into the foreground and to depersonalize and erase the human labor of building. Though at first his writing can sound poetic, we shouldn't take this feeling of artistry at its face value. Listen again to the quote from the foreword and notice how actions are presented. Only with the founding of the Republic does a new creative spirit appear, a new sense of form. Then, as a new civilization takes shape, amid the hum of harvester and factory, a new material, steel, leaps from the earth, its towers rising in sunshine and storm, glowing in the night, embody the aspiration of a new world. Wow. So the hum of harvester and factory are the background to this new civilization. Steel simply leaps from the earth. The towers rise and glow without regard for the forces of nature. In this new society, the materials and objects of production are assembled and animated as though they do not require human actors. Civilization, materials, machines, they're all set in motion and given purpose, not by any material source of energy. Rather, they come to life through the energy of the new creative spirit, who is, of course, the architect. Thinking of the architect as this new creative spirit actually reminds me of the scene in Disney's Fantasia, where Mickey Mouse works as a cleaning assistant maybe a janitor for the sorcerer. And when the sorcerer is gone, he borrows his boss's magical powers to animate brooms and buckets to do the work for him. Do you remember this? And then it gets out of hand because the broom has filled too many buckets of water. And then the sorcerer needs to save Mickey by deanimating the brooms and buckets and parting the waves of water like Moses up the Red Sea, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that can be read as an allegory? It seems to me to imply that only true masters of magic can properly automate and control the working class. You know, so in this case, a masterful architect would be the sorcerer and an apprentice architect would be Mickey and all the brooms are laborers. Yeah, and because the brooms have hands, it isn't clear if they are personified objects or objectified people. Totally. Either way, they are denied people status. When they get out of control and threaten to flood the sorcerer's gigantic lair, the sorcerer makes them disappear. Which is also a theme in Fist Kimball we have been working with, the silence or censorship of people who threaten Kimball's idea of America. Yeah. Actually, through the work of Dr. Adrian Brown, we can see that the distinction Fisk Kimball makes between manual labor and creative work was not only a mark of class difference, but also race. Brown investigates William Starrett's monograph titled Skyscrapers and the Men Who Build Them as a site of racial and class representation. William Starrett was a builder whose company led the construction of the Empire State Building. The monograph was published in 1928, the same year that Kimball's book was published. And like Kimball's book, it carried with it the desire to elevate a profession. Brown observes that Starrett's monograph featured photographs of construction sites largely absent of the immigrant, indigenous, and ethnic laborers he employed. When people are shown in these photographs, they are depersonalized, blurred, and made to look like they are part of a larger machinery. Like the brooms. Yeah, totally. In Starrett's monograph, the censorship of human presence in the workplace is countered by Starrett's description of waste materials finding a good home with a, quote, racial colony on the periphery of the city. Brown writes, quote, racist strategic presences and absences in skyscrapers prove integral to Starrett's efforts to portray his role as builder as something as more than practical. 
rendering it as a practice with an aesthetic pedigree all its own. The title of Starrett's book, which is Skyscrapers and the Men Who Build Them, should then be understood to point to the builder, not the laborers, as the generator of the skyscraper. The builder, who animates construction by means other than manual labor, is similar to Kimball's architect. Yes, it is as though simply by drawing, the architect brings buildings into being. Kimball writes, quote, the towers thrust themselves upward, bastioned all about, and describing the Sheldon Hotel, in three great leaps of rhythmic height, it rises, gathering in its forces for the final flight. So in the case of Starr and Kimball, both the builder and the architect are grasping for a higher rung on the hierarchical ladder of capital and empire. In doing so, they redact from their story those who are less capable of ascension or those who would hinder their own ascension. It is also notable that the appearance of clients in Kimball's book is limited, and when they do appear, they never inhibit the architect. In Kimball's book, this is a strategy that lifts architecture from vocation to profession and architects from servant to agent. It is the same strategy that intrigues the new creative spirit to announce itself on the page while the representation of physical bodies is pressed silently into the white background. Pages of Fisk Kimball's American architecture censored race and labor, extolled capitalism, and in doing so, exemplified the settler colonialism that has constructed both American identity and architectural history. What does it mean for its legacy today? That's the important question. So American architecture was among a wave of 1920s texts that sought to define what counted as American in architecture. Kimball's book was seen as authoritative. A peer reviewer at the time praised its vision by remarking that Kimball, quote, recognizes both the body and soul of architecture. This utterance by the reviewer was not simply high praise, more so it was a reassertion of the central claim in Kimball's book that American architecture indeed had a body and soul, that it had a distinct and definable identity. So as it concerns the legacy, first we need to recognize that the body and soul of architecture as it has been constructed through progressive narratives like Kimball's is a very compromised legacy. And second, in recognizing it as a narrative that persists, we also need to deconstruct how it works in order to become more familiar with the ways that settler colonialism continues to shape life in America. You can still see Fisk Kimball's legacy of architectural history in the built environment today. The Philadelphia Museum of Art, where he was director for three decades, is a rigorously classical structure that is undergoing extensive renovations by Gary Partners. But these renovations will leave the classical structure largely unchanged on the exterior. Given that Gary is about as far from classical as you could go today and as as famous as architects get, the fact that this firm's addition will be largely unseen on the exterior speaks to a privileging of the preservation of classical structures, which I think is linked to Kimball's origin stories of American architecture. We could read the restoration of this building as a continuity of promoting white ways of being through the myth of progress, which develops from a European origin to lift up a few at the expense of the many. Right. And Monticello, which Kimball had a large role in preserving, has only recently begun to talk about the legacy of slavery within the state, nearly a century after Kimball wrote this text. Just down the road, the UVA campus is super classical, but the memorial to enslaved laborers on the campus, completed by Howler and Yoon and Mabel Wilson just last year, shows us how we can read the legacy of slavery into the dominance of classical architecture. So it becomes clear that deconstructing this imperial history of American architecture is crucial in order for us and others to construct new histories and stories in its place. More attention should be paid to voices and material worlds of people who live between the cracks of this new world narrative. 
Thank you for listening. I'm Carrie Bly. And I'm Jeremy Wolin. This show was produced for Dr. Charles Davis's seminar, Reconstructing a Settler Colonial History of American Architecture at the Princeton University School of Architecture during the spring 2021 semester. You can find the music and audio credits included in our podcast and our show notes online, wherever you found this podcast. That concludes this episode of the Ray Sand Podcast. For updates on future episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Race and Podcast, all one word. To access the show notes and more information on our guests, please visit the Society of Architectural Historians Race and Architectural History Affiliate Group page at sahraah.com. Thank you for listening.